we are God's people. I want to believe that we are the good guys. I hope you feel that way about being God's people. God's people are the good guys. But what happens when the good guys don't live by faith? I want you to think about this dilemma for a moment. I know you're the good guys, but I also know you. What happens when the good guys don't live by faith? What happens when we, God's people, are indistinguishable from the world? This is a dilemma. And it's a biblical dilemma for all ages. And this is what the character story is about this morning. I'm going to start in Hebrews, where we've been basing our study. Let me read for you why we're going to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 32. He's talked about Abraham. He's talked about Sarah. He's talked about the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He's talked about Moses. Now he's going to make a switch in the book of Hebrews. And what shall I more say? What shall more I say? What more shall I say? I wish he had written it down and we'd know what he wanted to say. But he seems to be in a hurry. He has lack of time like, like I do. So I do not have time to tell about. And then he starts listing the judges or some of the judges. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, now he moves to the monarchy, or David, the prophets, or Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. With that statement from the book of Hebrews, we're going to go to the Old Testament, and for the next few weeks we're going to study the judges, month of April, and then we're going to study a group of women from the Old Testament in the month of May. We're going to talk about all of these characters so that you have a foundation for knowing who the biblical characters are. If I say these names to you, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, several of those names are familiar to you. You've been in church, I mean, if you have been. If you haven't been, don't worry, we'll tell you who they are, but David's a familiar name and the prophet Samuel's a pretty familiar name to most people who've been in church and Gideon maybe, Samson for sure, I think most people would know who Samson is, a little bit about him, but there's one name in the list that hardly anyone knows about, and that's the guy named Jephthah. Now, remember, the writer in, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews is mentioning all of these people because he's using them in his sermon. The book of Hebrews is one long-running sermon on living by faith. It's about, it's a faith sermon. And so in the 11th chapter, in the middle of that faith sermon, the writer of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, says, let me give you some examples. And then he starts going through these Old Testament examples 
of faith. Now here's what I need to say to you again. I've said it many times to you. The preacher is not saying that these people are role models in every aspect. I think this is so important for you to hear over and over. Because I think we've maybe done some injustice in how we've taught these people. The author of Hebrews is not saying, look at these Old Testament characters and be exactly like them. The author is not saying that you need to emulate everything. He's saying you need to emulate their faith. It's a sermon about faith. And so he's saying, I'm holding these people up as examples. Look to their faith and you exercise your faith like these people exercise their faith. The author of Hebrews certainly is not asking you to emulate their aberrant behaviors. And when you get over to the Old Testament, you're going to find all kinds of aberrant behaviors. We are not being asked to reintroduce into the modern church and modern society patriarchy, male domination of society. We are not being asked to do that. We go over there to the Old Testament and we see that's what it looked like the author of the New Testament is not saying, well, you've got to be like uh, Abraham, get you several wives. That is not what's being said. The Bible is not asking you to reintroduce patriarchy. It's not asking you to reintroduce polygamy. It is not asking you to reintroduce primogeniture. That is the double blessing of the firstborn, blatant partiality in the family. You're the secondborn. Do you ever feel like there's blatant partiality in the family? Maybe your sister gets, you know, no, you don't treat me the same as you treat my sister. Okay, just imagine living in a society where there is a blatant, pronounced primogeniture. The firstborn gets this doting, loving affection, double the inheritance automatically of every other kid. It creates jealousy, and you see that jealousy and division in all those Old Testament families that we've been showing you over the weeks. Know all of these things, uh, patriarchy, polygamy, and primogeniture, these are all abhorrent to our society. And you should never repeat these things. We find these repulsive in a modern, in a modern culture that's developed like ours. What the author is saying, even in these ancient, raw, uh, 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 primal kind of cultures, there was faith. Look to these people's faith. Look how they didn't have a Bible, they didn't have a church, they didn't have a lot of what you have, the benefits of, but yet they, they lived by faith. And among these leaders uh, who lived by faith were a group of deliverers, I want to use this word because I think it's more clear, a group of deliverers called judges. When you think of judge, you think of a courthouse and somebody in a robe and a gavel and a bench and all of this, that's not what we're talking about here. Their group, the, the judges, are actually a group of deliverers. And these deliverers were men and women who were going to have to go to battle. It's a very militant kind of a situation here. They're people who are going to have to lead the nation in battle and go up against foreign powers who are constantly harassing and invading God's people. Now, here's what we're going to discover. It's not the foreign powers that are the real problem. What we're going to discover is that God's people are the real problem. Because God's people are a covenant people. Remember the Abraham covenant? Remember the Sinai covenant? 
They read the rules. They said, God will be our God. We will do all of this. It's like a marriage ceremony. And God says, if you do, then I'll bless you among all the peoples of the earth. You'll be my peculiar treasure, my special nation, like a bride. It's like a marriage ceremony almost. They continually break the covenant with God. And so God's people become the problem. They've forsaken God. And now God's people, should have been the good guys, are just like everyone else. I think it's an important message for the modern church this morning. Because God is determined to have a people. That's what the story of the Bible is about. God is determined to have a people. And He wants those people to be the light of the world. He wants His people, what are those New Testament metaphors? Salt and light. He wants you to be different. He wants you to make a difference in this world. Your kingdom people, your covenant people, your sermon on the mount people, your do unto others as you would have them do unto you people, your, 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 your good neighbor people, your loving people, your kind people, your generous people, forgiven people can be forgiving. Loved people can show love. And that's the kind of people God wants His people to be. And so that's the hope of the world. So with that in mind, you understand why God's people must survive? If you're salt and you're light, and God's people are the hope of the world, do you understand why God's people have to survive? Well, the problem is, what happens when God's people are just like every other people? What happens when God's people break their covenants and turn their back on God and live just like the rest of the world? Now do you see a real dilemma? Because when God's people broke the covenant, He's going to allow judgment to come and the world is going to be in chaos. And here's the problem. Maybe take you back to the timeline. Moses, wandering in the wilderness, disciples Joshua, hands the baton to Joshua. Joshua comes into the promised land, conquers Canaan. Now when Joshua dies, now the big problems really start after the death of Joshua. The people become spiritually and socially dysfunctional. God's people break down is what happens after the death of Joshua. So in your Bible, you have the books of Moses, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges is the next book. Joshua is dying, and it transition is the end of Joshua, first of Judges. And within a few chapters, Judges really gets going. You enter into this period of several hundred years where everything is broken spiritually in Israel. Let's call this the Canaanization of Israel. So Israel inhabited the promised land, Canaan, but they were told to get rid of the Canaanites, push them out, and they were not to be there with them because the Canaanites were idol worshipers. They had no, no they, didn't understand, they didn't worship God. You're to be different. But what happens when God's people are Canaanized? when there is no difference between God's people and the Canaanites. And you get a full summary of the decline of God's people in Joshua, uh, Judges chapter 2. Let me read. This is a little part of the longest passage I need to read this morning. Stay with you. Judges 2. And after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, Moses, Joshua, everybody who did the conquest, when that whole group had died, gathered to their ancestors, means they died, and, and went to the Lord, okay? When they were gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. 
Now I want to pause right here in my reading and say to you, do you understand why your pastor is constantly preaching to you about multi-generational Christianity? About making sure our children and grandchildren know the Lord by being, you should be highly offended if your children grow up and don't know the Lord. You should be highly upset if your grandchildren grow up and do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm saying to you is your life mission, Alan as a granddad, man, your mission in life, J.D. as a grandfather, Janet as a grandmother, your mission in life is to make sure those grandkids know Jesus Christ's love, to make sure that they just grow up in love. Listen, every mistake you've ever made, that's behind us. Uh, Every failure of our past is behind us. Whatever we grew up with that wasn't right, we don't want our kids and grandkids to ever experience any of that. We want them to grow up surrounded by the love of Jesus Christ and to know God and to make sure that we're working diligently on multi-generational followers of Jesus Christ. Man, that's your mission. If you have no other mission, if you say, I don't really have a purpose in life, except to go to work. No, you've got a huge purpose in life. You say, well, I don't have any kids, or my kids are grown. Okay, adopt somebody. Now, I don't mean literally. What I'm talking about is discipleship. I mean, just connect yourself, build a relationship with someone else, and begin to speak into their life. Man, if you're not a part of discipleship, see one of our discipleship pastors and say, I need to be a part of this. This is the life mission I need. So now a generation rises up that knows not God. Now, let me ask you, why is that? Somewhere along the way, parents and grandparents dropped the ball, didn't they? Somebody, some leadership, there was a leadership failure in Israel. Now let me keep reading. Verse 11, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Now these are male idols. Baals and Ashtaroths are going to be mentioned. These are male and female fertility idols. These are gods of the Canaanites, okay? So when you see this, it has to do with Baals and Ashtaroths are worshipped out in the, out in the uh, forest or out on the hills. And it involves uh, uh, totem poles and trees, uh, worship trees that mark these places of worship. I don't want to go off into that, just say they worshipped idols. Okay, Baals and Ashtaroths are idols. Verse 12, they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And they aroused the Lord's anger. Because they forsook him and served Baals and the Ashtaroths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them, other countries invading. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. In other words, they became weakened nationally because they went after idols. Verse 15. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Yes, when a nation turns away from God, it's going to go downhill in a hurry. And they were in great distress. Let me read in verse 18 forward. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, a deliverer, He was with the judge and saved Israel out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, 
the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. They got progressively worse and worse after each deliverance cycle. They went backwards further, is what he's saying. They got worse and worse every generation, more corrupt than their ancestors following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Now, I've just given you the whole background setting of the book of Judges in just about 10 minutes, and now you understand the situation. The book of Judges, you can expect it to get progressively worse as we go in. The problem is I'm going to start you in chapter 11 right in the middle of the book this morning. So I'm going to plunge you with that background material right into the middle of the book. And you're just going to step right into the middle of chaos, okay? Are you ready? You know what's coming. The people have turned to idols. God's forsaken them. It's a big old disaster. I'm reading Judges chapter number 10, verse 6. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. Hmm. As Alan Smith would say. Hmm. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served Him, then God's going to have to respond here in just a moment. Now what's in those verses is this. Two specific gods are mentioned and five groups of gods. Two specific idols are mentioned and then five more countries, people groups full of idols are mentioned. I think it's the author's way of just... Uh, piling gods, idol gods upon idol gods upon idol gods and I want you in your mind to see a mountain of idol gods because I think that's what the author's intent is here to show you how deep the apostasy of Israel is. God's people haven't just strayed a little bit. They've piled idols on top of idols on top of idols. It's chapter 10 now. We're in the middle. Just remember, I told you it would get bad. They've broken the covenant with God. Things have gotten so bad that they no longer serve God at all. And now the country is in a serious, serious dilemma. Watch God's agents of punishment come. God lets the other nations be the agents of punishment against His people. Judges 10 verse 7. He became angry with them and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, the Moabites, who that year, watch these words, shattered and crushed them. Wow, that sounds pretty severe, doesn't it? The Ammonites came in and the Philistines came in and that year they crushed God's people. For 18 years, they oppressed the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. Now, the, you see God's agents of judgment. He just says, listen, if you don't want to be in a covenant with me, I'll just take my hands of protection off. And here they come. And here come the Philistines. And here comes the invading army. And Israel gets in such a miserable condition, as they always do, that they begin to, well, you'll see in verse 10, Israel's response to God. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, God, we've sinned against you in forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Whoa, we made a big big mistake 
God, God, we're sorry. Oh, you see the situation we're in? God, we're so sorry. They're crying and begging God to save them and deliver them. But God's really ticked at His people. Matter of fact, I don't know how you imagine God to be. One of the great things to do in reading the Old Testament is to learn how God is. He has a very clever personality. God has a personality. Are you ever sarcastic? You ever snarky? And you may think, well, God, you know, God just hovers around on a cloud saying, you know, God is love all the time. God can be really sarcastic and snarky too. Watch what's about to happen right here. Judges 10, 14. They said, God save us, God save us. Here's God's response. Go and cry to the gods you have chosen. Let the Baals and the Ashtaroth save you. You say, well, it's just a stump, or it's just an idol, or it's just a rock, or it's just a... a, Exactly. Cry out to them and let's see if they'll save you. Oh, the Philistines are here. Okay, cry out to your gods. See if they'll help. You You don't want to cry to me. You didn't want me. You don't want to be in a relationship with me. You found that too oppressive for some reason. Cry out to the gods that you've made, and let's see if your gods can save you. Let them save you when you are in trouble, exclamation point. God's being a little snarky right here. But not that he doesn't have reason to be, after all. They've really offended him. But the Israelites said to the Lord, God, we've sinned. Do with us whatever you think is best, but please rescue us now. And they get into this dialogue with God that's clearly manipulative. And God's really responding to them in a way saying, listen, you can't just forsake me. And then come to me in prayer and try to manipulate me to get me out of the bad circumstance that your behavior got you into. And then after I rescue you, you're not going to make me your God or your king. Do you see God's point of view here? But do you see what the Israelites are doing to God? They're doing to God something that modern Christians also do to God. We have no intention of making him the Lord of our life. We just want him to save us from hell, forgive us of our sins, so we can, you know, be saved. And then we want to live our life however we want to live our life. And then when our life gets all in a twist, we're going to come to God and say, God, rescue us. We have sin. I want you to see this is the same God that you still serve. And God is is a little ticked at that kind of attitude. And what he wants to know is if I save you, if I forgive your sins, if I become your Savior, am I also going to be your Lord and King? Because those go together, they're not separable. And I think that's something the modern church has to be reminded of. We're not saved to do whatever we want to do. We're saved to be God's people now. The light and salt of of this world, the, the hope of the world through the church of Jesus Christ, and we are called to make a difference, but if you're going to make a difference, you got to be different. And that's where our society is at right now as well. So God says, oh, you people are, now this is my, my version. If I were writing this, I would have put A-A-A-R-R-R-G-G-G-H-H-H. You people are driving me crazy. But they cried and they cried and they were, they were oppressed by these oppressors. Verse 16. So then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and they started serving the Lord again. 
And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So let me just say to you, there's no deliverance without repentance. And when we turn away from sin and we turn to God, we have the promise of Scripture, 1 John chapter number 1, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But first you're going to have to come to Him in repentance and make your confession to God and say, God, I've sinned. And I'm sorry, but if you will do that and you will call upon the Lord, you have the promise of the Word of God. Aren't you thankful for His faithfulness? Aren't you thankful for His mercy that when we mess up, we can come and seek that forgiveness and have the promise that it will be there? But now they've been forgiven. Okay, God's like, all right, let's reset the relationship. But just because you've been forgiven didn't make the Philistines go away, nor nor the invading armies on the east side of Jordan. So you're still going to have to deal with the foreign invasions. So now Israel's readying themselves. They see the handwriting on the wall. War is inevitable. Something's going to happen. We're about to have armed conflict with these invaders. But they've got a big, big problem. God's people don't have a strong leader. And that's a big problem. I really, as I was preparing, began to think about the situation our world is in right now. My present world, your present world is in right now. I think the world's in a very similar situation today. I see a world that's desperate for leadership. Good leadership, strong leadership, reliable leadership, sane leadership, strong leadership. That's the world I see through my lenses. And I think the world is desperate for some strong leaders. been such an attraction to Zelensky right now in Ukraine where, you know, you're hearing him speak, you're seeing the circumstances, and you just feel some, something for him. It, it doesn't matter really what your political persuasion is. You see that guy standing up against the invading army, and you're like, man, something about that guy I, I appreciate. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. The world is desperate for leadership. And when you may not can define leadership, but when you see one, you recognize what it looks like, right? You say, there's one right there. That's what a leader looks like, trying to stand up with it with his people right there. I I think we're in a similar situation today where people are looking for someone also spiritually. Someone who can lead them into something real and something eternal. I I think uh, my, my generation, I think you're tired of empty and unsatisfying religion. People are searching for the truth. They need hope. They need to know where to find that hope. They need to know where to find their mission for life and how to make sense of life, how to have purpose for living, how to live with God's power, how to be transformed, how to be something different than we used to be. People are looking for the truth and they're looking for strong spiritual leadership. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about you leading your disciples. It's about you being those strong leaders. You men and women being the strong leaders of this church and of this community and of this generation leading your disciples into the truth and into real lasting life change through a real walk with the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. While the world was looking for hope and the world was looking for a leader, let me read verse number 18. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, We're just desperate for a leader. Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Now, there's two words that are going to be used in the text. One, head is like president. It's like like the, the, the number one in the country, the real leader of the country. 
Whoever, listen, we're in a pickle. There's no one to lead us. Whoever will go out and fight for our country will be the president, is what they're saying. And that's the offer they made, and that's what the press release said. And so the, the people of Israel began to look for a leader. <clears throat> but here's qualifications. Someone willing to lead the people out to battle. This is what they were looking for. And it's in that setting that now our first judge that I want to talk about, not chronologically, but first judge I want to talk about, steps to the scene. This is the setting for Jephthah's story. And he becomes Israel's agent of deliverance. Let me read Judges 11 now, verse number 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. Now, you just got a snapshot of the man, just like that. And here's what the author told you. This is a bad dude. This is one mighty man. This is a guy I just have in my mind now. Brave, courageous, mighty warrior. Don't mess with this guy. If you want battles won, this is the kind of man's man you're looking for to lead the people out to battle. Let me read the whole sentence again. Judges 11.1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. It's his name. His mother was a prostitute. Well, that's startling. I've got a two-sentence resume for the man who's going to be leader of Israel. He's a mighty man of valor. His dad's a philanderer. His mother's a prostitute. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Help wanted. Someone to deliver Israel. You want to turn in your resume? My dad's a philanderer. My mom's a prostitute. But I'm a bad dude. Don't mess with me. I now just almost in my mind know how he got to be a bad dude. I'm seeing just instantly this guy had a rough coming up right here. He had a rough situation to deal with. He's the most unlikely leader in his generation. And his story is really a story about overcoming his family circumstances to become Israel's leader. There's no way you can come through this story without seeing that he was scarred by the immorality of his father and the reputation of his prostitute mother. And because of that, he experienced all kinds of rejection in his life. I do not have to surmise that. I've read the story. You're going to see the rejection in just a moment. So that leads us to Jephthah's conflict with his own family. Not only does he have a flandering father and prostitute mother, but it's caused him to grow up and be a tough man. He has a group of half-brothers. So his dad had other sons through a legitimate wife. So he's got a bunch of half-brothers from Gilead and Gilead's wife. And the half-brothers don't want to have anything to do with him. Listen to what the text says, verse 2. We're told that the brothers actually changed the will and kicked Jephthah out of the family. Judges 11:2. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, <clears throat> they drove Jephthah away. Here's their words, quote, You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. Why, you son of a prostitute, we don't need you around here. You're not welcome here. You're not wanted here. You don't belong in our decent family. Now, is Jephthah a prostitute? 
Is Jephthah, uh, what has Jephthah done wrong? To this point, you don't know that Jephthah's done anything wrong. And yet his own brothers come at him and say, you're not worthy to be in this family. This is a decent family. Well, wait, don't we have the same dad? Question mark? Well, this is a decent family. You son of a, a prostitute, you're not welcome here. But the real issue is not the son of the prostitute. Look at the real issue. Look at the real issue. You are not going to get any inheritance. The real issue is that the boys want to secure their financial future. And this guy's too, too mean to deal with one-on-one. Let's come at him as a group, change the will, and manipulate the money away from Jephthah. Now, I learned a lot of things by this story. And let me just give you observations as we go. I want to remind you that we're not to blame people for the things in their past that they can't help. We're not to blame people for things in their past that they had no power over. And if you ever catch yourself either stereotyping or prejudiced, prejudging a matter and saying, I don't like this person or I'm leery of this person or I judge this person because of circumstances for which they had no control, you need to find a place of repentance for your own heart and thoughts at that point. Now, Jephthah's not to blame because of what his dad did. And yet somehow he takes the whole brunt of of the force of his family. No one can be blamed for their background. You had no control over your background. Listen, and no one should be responsible for the failures of their parents. This is what's broken with humanity. And it's what the church is not supposed to repeat. We're supposed to have a higher morality, a higher standard of dealing with people. Let me say it to you this way. Jephthah was a boy from the wrong side of the tracks, clearly. Mother a prostitute, father a philanderer, brothers all hateful. There's no record in the story that dad ever stood up for his son. He has almost zero chance of turning out right. And yet, I've got to summarize because of time, and yet, because Jephthah had faith in God, God makes him the deliverer and the ruler of Israel. I can say it another way to you. God has a way of taking nobodies and making somebody out of them. The Corinthians were too big for their britches and were arrogant. And Paul reversed the the tables on them. And here's what Paul told them. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise god chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong and if you're saying in your heart this morning you know what i'm just weak and i'm insignificant no god takes people like weak and insignificant and rejected and unlikely and not probable god takes all of those kinds of people and flips their life script upside down And he makes them something because of him, because of what he can do through their life. And I would say to all of us, if you have a troubled past, let me encourage you. God can still get glory from your life. Jephthah is an example uh, that in spite of our past, God can use anyone. So I hear people a lot of times say, Pastor, you know, I just don't think that God can use me in this role. You know what? I want to be as crystal clear as I can be. That's just an excuse. If nothing else from the story of Jephthah, here's what you learned. God can use anybody. 
And if you say, yeah, but I've got this past. Listen, don't, don't we all? And don't all of God's people have a history? It's just an excuse. You're just making alibis. And I'm challenging you this morning to step out by faith and follow God and own your own faith and own your own own place in the church and become a follower of Christ. Get on the path of being a disciple. The Bible teaches that we were all born in sin the first time. This is the teaching of the Bible. You're all born in sin the first time and you need to be born again. And the gospel is showing us how to be born again and how after a new birth you can experience a transformation and become a whole new you with a whole new future. I love the verses that John wrote in 1 John. Here's what he said. Yet to all who did receive him, receive Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be the children of God. There's the second birth. Believing on Jesus, now you're the family of God. You've got a whole new future. Again, in 1 John 3, he said this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. So don't say, I'm broken, I'm junk, I'm flawed, I can't turn out. No, you're a child of God. Let the Holy Spirit keep transforming your life. Get into discipleship. Own your faith and say, I'm going to be whatever God can make out of someone like me. And I can just tell you right now, God can make someone awesome out of someone like you. Now, they ran Jephthah off. That's where the story goes. They chased him away and said, you're not part of our decent family. And they ran him off. But he didn't let that ruin his life. I want to further say to all of you, if you've been hurt... Do not let it ruin your life either. Jephthah didn't sit around and say, well, my brothers rejected me, my father rejected me, I'm disinherited, you know, boo-hoo, you know, woe is me. No, 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 no. Listen, if you've been rejected, you're, you're good company with Jephthah, you're good company with Jesus Christ. Don't let it derail your life. You say, well, I tried serving God before and I just got hurt. Or I, I tried to give, you know, real commitment to my life to God and I just got hurt somewhere along the way. Listen, everybody gets hurt somewhere along the way. But don't let it stop you from pursuing God. Do not let it ruin your life. Judges 11.3 So Jephthah fled from his brothers and he settled in the land of Tob or Tob. This is fascinating. Where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him so he flees to Tob now I just want to say this dot 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 time passes you say what's happened in the passing of time a whole group of mighty men same thing happened to David uh, but here's what the Bible calls them a whole group of scoundrels now are you making pictures with your mind right now what these scoundrels look like Pirates, Vikings, you know, uh, uh, marauders, uh, biker gang, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, for all you Harley riders in the room, real hooligans like you, a group of scoundrels gathered to Tobe and Tobe around Jephthah. You say, well, what's happening with this group of scoundrels? Well, they're learning how to be men. They're learning how to train. I guess you could use this word, warlord, is who Jephthah becomes. A group of men gather around and he opens the Jephthah School of Mixed Martial Arts. 
And a whole group of scoundrels come out to enroll in his mixed martial arts school. And he begins to train them. And they turn into a group of a fighting force. They turn into a little mercenary group out there. Here's what I want to say before I transition. He used that time of hardship and rejection to toughen up. Just to toughen up and to learn how to lead people with flawed lives to become brave and valiant men and women. He took a bunch of scoundrels and forged them into a force for deliverance. And I guess our takeaway is this this morning. We need to remember that the power of God is greater than all the odds that are stacked against us. If nothing else, remember that today. I know you've got some things stacked against you, everyone does, but the power of God is greater than the odds stacked against you, and the grace of God is greater than all of your sins. And God is full of mercy and forgiveness, so stop giving alibis and stop making excuses, and you just dedicate yourself to being His disciple and say, here I am with all of my brokenness. God, can you, if, if you can use broken scoundrels like me, then God, I lay myself on the altar and I want you to know if you'll come to Him with the right heart like that, He absolutely will transform your life and give you a brilliant, beautiful future in the kingdom of God. So now, here's Jephthah's conflict with his own tribe. Israel is in such a mess, they had a meeting. And the elders get together and they said, guys, we've got to have a leader. We are in such a mess, we've just got to have a leader, somebody who's tough, somebody who's sharp, somebody who's witty, somebody who talks well, somebody who can negotiate well, someone who can organize a group of fighting men and women to to represent the country. And when they put that out there, whoever leads us to battle will be our king, will will be our president. No resumes came in, it looks like. A generation of no leadership, no resumes came in. And so they gathered the leaders together and said, okay, we're going to have to start reaching out to people. And they got together and they said, well, we're going to need somebody rough and tough and smart and witty and clever and a good talker and brave and fearless and tough. And they said, wow, there's that mixed martial arts group over there that's led by Jephthah. Jephthah, the son of the prostitute? Yeah. Yeah, we haven't seen him in 10 years. wonder what's become of that guy. So they send a delegation and they reach out to Jephthah and it goes something like this. "Uh, Brother Jephthah, it's good to see you, man. You have no idea how much we've missed you all these years. Man, where have you been keeping yourself? Gosh, we've been looking for you and longing for you. And man, you keep all to yourself out here. Listen, we've got a little military problem. And we just wondered if you'd be willing to come over and be our military leader, not president. They changed the offer. You want me to come be your military, like a general? Yes, we want you to come be a general and lead the army in battle. Now, you're not supposed to say, I told you so. I know that's impolite. But Jephthah is going to hold their feet to the fire. Wait a second, Jephthah says. Aren't you the people who ran me off? Aren't you the very people who conspired with my family to have me disinherited, steal my land, steal my inheritance, and reject me? Let let me get this right. You rejected me, but now you need me. Am I getting this right? Is that the story? Now listen, that is the story, but I want you to see maybe God's playing word games with us right here too because they rejected God, but now they need Him. By the way, I just want to say this. I know you would never do it, but I want to use it in a prophetic way, okay? If you turn your back on God, you're going to find you need Him very shortly. 
And when you come to him, you're going to bear the guilt of hearing a message like this. And you're going to have to say, oh gosh, I've got to come back with my tail between my legs and say, God, I've really messed up now. I, I turned my back on you, and now it just slaps me in the face. What a fool I am. And God, my life's never, I've never been as happy as I was serving the Lord. You know what you're going to find, Christians? You've never had life as good. You've never had been as happy. You've never been as fulfilled. You've never been as at peace. Your marriage has never been better. Your children have never been happier than when you were all serving God. And somehow, sin and Satan lure us away from that and make us think, well, life outside of the church and outside of the fellowship and outside of the family, it's just where it's, man, that's where living's really at. And Yeah, and after about a year of that, you wake up one day like the prodigal and say, what in the world am I doing? Why have I turned my back on God? That's when we were happy. That's where the blessings rained down on us and, and, and everything was wonderful. Okay, listen. And Jephthah's doing this. He's saying, now wait, you're the guys who rejected me, right? So now you're coming to me and saying, you want me to be your general. Okay, let me just ask you a different question. Will I be your president? Oh, you heard about that offer that we previously put out, did you? He did. He's clever. He's sharp. He's really good with his words, okay? And he said, yeah, I did hear about that offer, and I was, I was curious to know about that. Is that the offer you're making me? Because a minute ago you said general, and now I'm thinking president was the original offer. And so, listen, uh, I, I also want to say I see a little picture of Jesus right here. Because when you're convicted of your sin, and you cry out to Jesus, and you say, God, please help me, Jesus is going to ask you the same question. Okay, I can forgive you, and I can uh, put this under the blood, but will I be your king? Will I be your Lord? I'm wondering how many people have come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins with no intention of making Him Lord. And I'm very curious about such a salvation because I'm not sure that works biblically. If He's going to forgive you of your sins, He's going to be your King, going to be your President, going to be your Lord. And He's calling the shots. That's the package deal. Very curious that this is all playing out in the story of Jephthah. Let me read it now. Verse 9. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me uh, back to fight the Amorites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your president? That's what's being said right here. The elders of Gilead replied, okay, you got us. The Lord is our witness. Uh, Stack of Bibles. We raise our right hand. We will certainly do as you say. And at this moment, Jephthah has overcome his past. At that moment, Jephthah is now the commander-in-chief of the nation of Israel. He has just taken the oath of office. You talk about an unlikely story. The boy from the wrong side of the tracks is now the leader of Israel. And now Jephthah is about to have conflict with that foreign power. Verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with questions. What do you have against me that you've attacked my country? This is worded so casually, so Jephthah-like. Very diplomatically, he's going to have negotiation. He's not just going to come in guns a-blazing. So he reaches out to the invading king and he says basically this, Dude, what's your problem? Why have you invaded Israel? What do we do to you, man? You know, we're over here minding our own business. Can't you mind your... You know, you look at the current political map of the world... And everybody's scratching their head saying, what's this lunatic doing in Europe? What's your problem, dude? You have one of the biggest nations in the world. 
What's your problem? <laughs> Why do you need to invade everybody else? And that's really the tack that Jephthah takes. Dude, what's your problem? Why, why, why did you attack us? The king sends back a, 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 a message and says, Israel took my land and give it back peaceably right now. That's basically what the king said. You took my land, that's why I'm attacking. Give it back peaceably right now. But Jephthah is a skilled negotiator and he's good with words, as I said. And he knows the history of the region. So Jephthah sets the historical record right and tells the king, your facts are not facts. Your history is all wrong. He says, Israel never took the land from the children of Ammon. Furthermore, the land never historically belonged to Ammon. You've got all of your facts wrong. Verse 26, for 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aurora, and the surrounding settlements and the towns near the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them in that time? Let me, let me just put this in really simple negotiating terms. The land in dispute has been ours for the last 300 years. Why in 300 years has no legal suit been filed in a court of law disputing this piece of land? It's been this way for three centuries. And 300 years is a long time in anybody's book. Why has no one complained that Israel has this land for the last 300 years? Well, the king won't listen to Jephthah, and I think this is, I see this in human nature. When you're mad and you want to fight, you won't let the truth affect you either. You just want to fight, you know? And so we have the same thing going on in Europe right now. When you're mad and you want to fight, you just fight. You won't let anybody uh, dissuade you with the facts or the truth or no reasoning. And so the king of Ammon is, is heading for a military conflict. Verse 28, the king of Ammon paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. So reasoning didn't work, negotiations didn't work, so now you're going to see Jephthah's confidence in armed conflict. In verse 29, we come to a pivoting point in the whole story again. Let me read it for you. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. I want to pause right there. When you see this in the Old Testament, something is about to happen. This is pre the cross, pre the resurrection, pre Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit doesn't indwell the people in the same way He indwells you right now. Whatever happens in the Old Testament is like this. People are living their lives and living their lives, and God begins to deal with a man or a woman, and then the verse will read, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. And when that phrase shows up, something is about to happen. You'll see it over and over with the judges. And I want to say this to you. You'll see it over and over your life too. Because now you have the Holy Spirit in your life. And you're supposed to be constantly living a Spirit-filled life. Which means you are capable of anything God wants you to do. There's no such thing as not being able to do something. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. You know, I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, maybe when you're growing up, somebody asks you to do something, you say, well, I'm not able to do that. I'm not able to do that. I want you to know if God is prompting you to do something, you are therefore able to do it. Because God's Spirit is in you, there's no such thing as not able. Because God's Spirit is in you. And now God's Spirit comes upon Jephthah, and when, when this happens in the Old Testament, you better get out of the way, that's all I'm saying. And so now you have a Spirit-filled Jephthah, 
And he crossed Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. Anointed with the Spirit of God, this is how he's going to win the battles. And by the way, anointed with the Spirit of God is how you live every day and how you're going to win the battles. If you're born again, you're filled with the Spirit of God. And that's why in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, you, dear children, are from God and you are overcomers. You have overcome them because the one in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You have God's Spirit in you. You are able to do anything God inspires you to do. There's no such thing as excuses and alibis. You just need to... And listen, it's a different way of thinking. We have to change our way of thinking. You know, God says, hey, I want you to talk to this person. I just don't know what to say. Stop it. Holy Spirit's going to give you what to say. Just launch in. You know, God says, I want you to give. You're like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to give. He's going to make you able to give. You say, well, I want you to fill in the blank. Serve. Well, I just don't know if I, I, I know how to do. God's going to give you ability and he's going to help you do what he's asking you to do. The big issue this morning is are we going to commit our lives to Christ? Or are we going to yield to that power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And are we going to allow God to transform us into the new human beings he wants us to be? Well, Jephthah's conflict now with his own mouth and his own ego show up. Judges 11.30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give me the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah goes off to war. He's about to go clash with the king of the Ammonites. And his army just routed the Ammonites. I mean, just like a hot knife through butter. Just slew the Ammonites and pushed back the enemy and, and settled the border of the land and won a huge victory for Israel. And he came home to a ticker tape parade and a big victory celebration. He brings the, whole, the army home with, with the, the glory of God and God has defeated the enemies and great fanfare. And when Jephthah comes to his house, we read in verse 34, when he returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels, she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh, no, my daughter. What have I done? What have I done? Now, about right here in the story is where you're supposed to feel some sickness in the pit of your stomach. And you're supposed to ask yourself right now, am I really reading what I'm reading? Surely there is some way to explain this away. Am I really reading what I'm reading? Listen, human sacrifice was a practice of the Canaanite idol worshipers. They did offer their children to Molech. They did offer their children, the Philistines, to Dagon. These pagan idol worshipers did do human sacrifice. God's people don't do human sacrifice. God's people see life as a gift from God. God's people don't kill their children. Everybody with me? God's people honor life. You're like, what in the world are we reading? 
human sacrifice is completely rejected by God's people. And, and, let me say this, we're under the time of the law now, with the tabernacle and the priests and all of that. If you make a vow that affects another human being, the vow can be vacated by the high priest. Everybody stay with me for a minute. If I say, you know, I'm going to stop in three minutes or God can strike Jeff Jared dead with lightning. Well, I'm not going to stop in three. I'm going to stop in about five. So is God going to, see, so Jeff could go to the high priest and say, he made an oath to God, but you see what I'm saying? I want the oath vacated. I want it annulled. And the oath could be annulled by the high priest. Now, you say, explain this, Pastor. There's no explanation. If you're wanting one, you're not going to get one. The Bible will not give you one. You're going to have to just twist with the sick feeling in your stomach right now for a minute. Whether Jephthah's too arrogant to back down from his vow, or whether he's too prideful to go to the high priest and have the vow annulled, or whether he might be practicing syncretism and merging idolatry back into Jehovah worship, God worship, which seems like it could be what's happening, where now the man who won the victory by faith has shot off his mouth in ambition and is going to practice Canaanitism after having just won a battle for God. You say, this is messed up. Yeah, and sometimes after God uses you to lead somebody to Christ or to teach your best Sunday school lesson or to do your greatest discipleship victory or to do something like, you turn around and do something completely boneheaded. We are inconsistent. And I think this is what's really troubling me. When I read this, I'm angry at him for shooting off his mouth. And I also feel like I'm a little bit standing in front of a mirror and I'm mad at myself. Because I know that sometimes when God is blessing us and we're doing so good, then sometimes we wander away from God in the middle of being blessed by God. Now whatever's happening, I'm not sure. But I can tell you this. The hero is now a victim of his own ambition. It was such a beautiful story, wasn't it? Kid from the wrong side of the tracks, makes president, leads the nation in victory. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and man, in, in the Spirit of the Lord, he went and did great things for God. It was such a beautiful story. And now we're left at the end with conflicted emotions. And I know what you're going to want to ask me, the pastor, is Jephthah a good guy or a bad guy? Yes. Yes. He's a bit of both, isn't he? Dang it, I feel like I'm standing in front of the mirror. You say, Pastor, are you a good guy? Well, I'm God's people and we are the good guys. Amen? But we don't always do good, do we? And what in the world are we going to do when God's people are just like the world? Doesn't something need to be fixed somewhere? You say, well, the world, the world, the world. I hear Christians all the time. Well, the world this, and the government this, and the legislature, and the Congress, and the president, and the government, and the world, and, and the world's going to hell, and the teenagers, and the and TikTok, and YouTube, and Facebook, and this, and that. Listen, the problem is not external, ladies and gentlemen. The problem's with God's people. Stop that. Condemning the world all the time. The problem is when God's people are not salt and light. 
we can't be what God wants us to be, and he can't do through us what he's trying to do through us. You say, well, he's been, he hadn't forsaken the church. No, the church has to survive. It's the only hope. So God's using a bunch of Jephthahs like us. Just imagine what we could be, though, if we were completely filled with the Spirit and 100% on board with being God's people. Now we're getting somewhere. And I think that's what the story is pointing us to. I'm going to land it right now. I think what we find most troubling is that we identify with Jephthah's inconsistency. The Spirit empowered him to deliver Israel, but rather than become a hero, he becomes an anti-hero. Yet the Hebrew writers, the writer of the book of Hebrews, looks backward and says, these are the heroes of faith. Listen, I'm preaching a sermon about faith. Like Jephthah. You said, did Jephthah have faith? You bet he did. And he becomes an example of faith. A deliverer who had faith to stand up and save God's people. And the message in Judges is this. Divine resources from God are available to human beings. Divine resources from Almighty God are available to you. But those divine resources must be appropriated by faith. That's how you appropriate them. You say, I want God to do great things to me. By faith is how that happens. If we're going to accomplish anything at all for God, it's going to require faith in God. And anything that we accomplish, we will accomplish because God did it through us and sometimes in spite of us. Israel's victories say much more about God's faithfulness than Israel's faithfulness. I'm just looking back at my own life, at the victories God has won. You know what? It says a lot more about who God is than who I am. My life story is not about my faithfulness. It's about how God has been faithful in spite of me. And I think that's all of our story to some degree. The victories won in the book of Judges speak volumes about how good and how faithful God is and how God refuses to give up His plan for His people. And that's how I know God hasn't given up on us, His church, in this modern generation. You are the hope of the world. You are the light of the world. You are the kingdom of God. You are God's people. And of course, I think the messages you're going to hear from judges are a real wake-up call for God's people. That we need to be God's people first and foremost. This is your identity. I'm God's people first and foremost. I want to make this practical for you. I want to be God's people before I'm a Republican. Matter of fact, I'm going to go way on a limb here and say you're to be God's people before you're an American. Your first identity is not I pledge allegiance to the flag. Your first identity is I pledge allegiance to King Jesus. And that trumps everything. And now we can put our other allegiances in line, but our ultimate calling is to be God's people first and foremost because God's people are covenant people. 
And to be in a covenant relationship with God is the highest privilege of any human being. If Cornerstone's going to accomplish anything in this modern generation for the kingdom of God, it's going to be a work of God that he does through a people living by faith and filled with his Holy Spirit. This is what it's all about. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want you to draw some conclusions about this message for your own life as we close the service. A lot has been said, and I think this invitation could go a lot of ways right now. I think the first thing to do is a little self-assessment in this first few seconds. Where are you and what you've heard this morning? Where are you? What is God speaking to your heart about right now? Is God speaking to you about your faith, trusting God and believing in God and God, maybe God's speaking to you about some consistency or inconsistency. Turning that inconsistency into a more consistent follower of Christ. Being steadfast, being, being a faithful follower of Christ. Maybe God's speaking to your heart about discipleship and that you're going to have to be developed by someone else. There's no such thing as just a self-made person. Christ's model in the New Testament is connect you with a spiritually mature disciple maker and let them speak the things of God into your life. Let them model for you what being a Christian is about. Maybe you are that disciple maker and you realize people are looking at you. What a call for consistency then. Maybe you're the person that needs to be discipled and you're ready to to connect and that may be the step you need to take this week is to reach out to us and say hey I need I've got to connect I've just got to connect and get get in the get in the game here big group of people joined the church last week we had five or more maybe you need to join the church be a part of this covenant community there's a lot of things God could be speaking to your heart about right now. I want you to pray about those. Don't just feel the conviction. Don't just feel the Holy Spirit's voice. You talk back right now. Say, God, I hear you, and this is what I hear you saying, and I want to acknowledge that I hear you saying it, and you tell him what you hear him saying, and then tell him what you want to do about it. Maybe you're here and you're feeling the conviction of sin because you realize you've never received Christ as your Savior. While other Christians are praying about the matters in their lives and their walk with the Lord, I want to invite you to come establish your walk with the Lord right now by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and asking Him to be your Lord and King and Savior. If you're ready to take that step with me, I want you to pray in your heart right now. Something like this, just follow along with me. Dear, dear God, I bow before you, feeling the weight of my sins right now. And I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus, I know you are the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is what I believe. I believe you died on the cross for my sins were buried and rose again to be my living Savior. 
And I want to make you my king, my Lord, my Savior today. So I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me. And bring me into that relationship personally with you. Make me God's people right now. Adopt me into your family. I receive you into my life and into my heart as my Savior. But not only my Savior, I receive you as my Lord and King. You have forgiven me and you are in charge. I now give you my life. Fill me with your spirit. And make me a person that bring glory to you. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. Father, I just want to pray for everyone right now over this whole group who've been challenged by the Word of God today. God, it's hard to find the right words because I don't want to pray that you make us a bunch of oddballs and freaks. The world just looks at us like a bunch of nut jobs. That's, that's not my prayer. But God, we need to be different. We need to be like you were, like loving and compassionate and kind and gracious. God, make us like you. Let us be different from the world. God, if we, your church, have become just like the world, like Israel got Canaanized, God, we want to repent of that as a church this morning. God, as the representative of this body, I want to confess some sins to you. And God, I want you to forgive us for being too much like the world. Forgive us, God, of our inconsistencies. God, forgive us for trivializing this worship time. God, forgive us for making it optional in our schedule and not a mandatory part of our lives. It says a lot about our lack of devotion, and God, we're sorry. God, forgive us not honoring you with all the first fruits of our increase, which has been a practice of your people forever. God, I pray that as we ask for forgiveness, I know we will be forgiven. You've been so gracious to promise that. And now, God, having put those things away, I want to ask you to open the windows of heaven. And if you would be so gracious to us, just pour out your blessings upon our families and upon this corporate congregation. God, just pour it on us. Not that we would be the most blessed people on planet Earth, but that through the blessing, Lord, we could bless others. Thank you for your goodness and your graciousness to use, I use this Bible word, you showed me scoundrels, using scoundrels like us. God, truly you have chosen the weak and the foolish 
and you have filled us with your spirit and made us something other than weak and foolish. Thank you, God. Keep working on us. Be patient with us. Continue to be long-suffering with us. We are works in progress. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may stand to your feet. Let's be dismissed. Uh, let me see one of these, Jeremy. Uh, th this is out there on the counter when you leave. This is an Easter invite card. There's hundreds of these out there and hundreds more coming next week. Uh, it, only take them if you're going to give them, but grab a couple of these. Whether you're out at a restaurant today or moving about town this week or you get your Starbucks later or your Dunn Brothers or your whatever it is, you, your Dutch Brothers or your 151 or your, we got everything now. Talk to somebody and invite them to Easter Sunday. Uh, people are more receptive in these coming weeks and at Christmas than they are any time of the year. No one's going to yell at you. No one's going to shake a fist at you. Just tell them, hey, can I invite you to Easter service at my church coming up in a couple of weeks? Grab those. They're out there on the floor. Take them all. Don't leave us any. We'll, we've got more coming in next week. Moses blessed the people of God with these words. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and may he be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you. And I hope you can feel this in your heart. May the Lord give you peace. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful week.